0: netcasts you love
1: from people you trust
0: this is twit bandwidth for security now is provided by aol radio at aol.com slash podcasting this is security now with steve gibson episode 204 for july 9th 2009 listener feedback number 70 Security Now is brought to you by Go to My PC. Think remote access to your PC is complicated? Think again. It's easy with Go to My PC. For your free 30-day trial, visit GoToMyPC.com slash securitynow It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all things security, privacy-related, with Mr. Steve Gibson. The man of the hour, the guy who discovered spyware, coined the term spyware, and, uh, all, and just disappeared as I pressed a button on the screen. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the show, your show. Hey, Leo. Great to be with you. As as
1: our listeners are hearing this, you are somewhere all over the water
0: in Asia. Somewhere over the rainbow. Let's and, see. This is, it- this is July 9th, so uh yeah i will i will actually be on the boat sailing from china to korea right now and exactly if, right. and if you heeded the advice from that we
1: discussed two weeks ago you're carrying an atm card that is not backed by too much cash That's because right. you don't really control the environment over there to the degree in fact maybe no one controls the environment over there to the degree that that we enjoy here in the u.s so um, I hope that your cash is safe.
0: I don't know. You know, I mean, I think in the old days, travel was a great adventure and all sorts of horrible things could happen to you. And now with the Internet and television, it's just become, you know, and, and, and airfare, air flights, it's just become pretty mundane. So maybe well, a little like
1: adventure. To, it's very much more like you never even left home. Because After all,
0: there is a Starbucks on every corner, no
1: matter what country you're in.
0: I so. was I was warning Henry that, you know, oh, you know, the food in China, you know, we may be very difficult for you. You know, if we might have to go through a week of suffering. In China. And then somebody tell me, oh, no, there's McDonald's everywhere. <laughs> it's like, oh, they say the, the best Kentucky fried chicken you ever had is in uh, Beijing. It's like, oh. Well, oh. as a consequence
1: of the fact that we are recording this two weeks ahead or three weeks ahead, actually, of, of when it's going to be aired, I don't have any security news. However, what we're going to do to make up for this is the, the Q&A in two weeks is, just gonna, is going to be our mega three weeks worth of security news catch-up
0: everything that happened while leo was in china everything that
1: (laughs) happened while leo was floating
0: around asia somewhere but we'll we'll be talking about to steve's credit he didn't want to miss a single episode he's never missed an episode we are at 204 episodes in 204 weeks so uh we decided to double up a couple of shows and um, and make sure that we get everything recorded so that you miss nothing well, I hear so many thank yous
1: uh, as I read through the the mailbag. Uh, by the way, that's at com slash feedback. So many people appreciate the reliability of knowing that they're going to have a Security Now podcast absolutely every week, you know, come hell or high water, that uh, I don't want to disappoint them. They're going to have to wait a little bit for news, but they'll get the news that happened only a couple weeks late. So and we're going to do a special mega news catch up podcast uh, for the next Q and a two weeks from now. Um, I did have when I was going through the mailbag for this particular story, um, a really nice sort of short spin right story that I wanted to share with our listeners um, from a a woman named Louise who said that her, the subject was GRC is my new hero. (laughs) She says, hi, Steve and Leo. I have a spin right story for you. Recently, Someone using my computer managed to get it infected with a trojan. Ugh, don't you hate that? Uh, don't you hate uh-huh. it when that happens? Yep. Being a long-time Security Now listener, I decided to reformat the drive. Good girl, and reinstall Windows because after it's infected, and that's what she means, is after she knew that after it was infected, she could never trust it again. So she said, "I backed everything up to my external drive." This drive locked up. While I was attempting to move my data back onto my newly reinstalled computer, I shut everything down, checked all my connections, and tried again. Imagine my horror when I discovered all of my backed up data had disappeared. The drive still worked, but my folder was mysteriously empty. I prayed for a miracle. So that's how that. So that means she was able to see the drive, right. but the folder where she had put everything had no contents. So that's kind of a good sign. Uh <laughs> well, it, it's better than if, you know, if the drive was completely yeah. completely not spinning anymore or or hosed in a bad way. I mean, yes, it it's a hopeful sign, I would say. Hopeful, there's the word I was looking for. So What she prayed for was what she needed. She says, I prayed for a miracle and booted up my copy of Spinrite. Parenz, I had originally purchased it three years ago after losing two hard drives in grad school. It took 27 hours, but I'm happy to say my data is all back and currently being copied back onto my laptop. Thank you so much for Spinrite. It is definitely
0: worth every penny. So, neat story. Thank you, Louise. Wow. Very interesting. Well done. Are you ready, my friend, for some questions and answers? We got this this one, okay? I put this at the top because <laughs>
1: we have a because we're recording double shows this week. We have a little bit more limited time than usual. Normally, this would have been the absolute mind-blowing story of the week, which we would have put at the end, but I didn't want to risk
0: missing this one because this is just too wonderful. Nothing wrong with starting with a bang. And this is a bang. <laughs> Trevor in Wall, New Jersey takes the cake with his story of the week. Subject Windows in Places It Shouldn't Be. Supermarket Edition. Hey, Stephen Leo. I've been a listener since episode 20. And uh, I've listened to all of it in reruns. I certainly agree with Steve's attitude towards Windows, a consumer operating system being used in mission-critical places. I recently had a horrifying experience at my local A&P supermarket here in New Jersey. I walked up to a self-checkout aisle and began to scan my items. Out of nowhere, the system freezes, beeps, and begins to reboot. Lo and behold, a friendly Windows 2000 boot screen appears. I cringe. I cringe. As a longtime security now listener, I watched in horrified fascination as the machine automatically logged in a user named Terminal 6. There was an icon on the desktop labeled Shopping Panel. That nah, probably was the interface for the checkout application. So I decided to do a little investigating. <laughs> <laughs> I opened Internet Explorer 6 and uh, it brought me to MSN.com. Hmm, guess they never changed the default web page. At this point, an annoyed AMP employee walked over and took control of the machine. He launched the checkout application and walked away. There was no antivirus software on this machine. There was no software firewall. And this machine had direct access to the Internet running, probably unpatched, Windows 2000 Professional. Good Lord. I I am never putting my credit card into one of these self-checkout machines ever again thanks for all the great work on security now as well as leo's other i'm so glad that this person listens and had the sense to try that isn't that wonderful i mean i just i get the hugest kick out of okay we're
1: surfing the internet from the self-checkout machine in the supermarket
0: it's connected to the net unprotected (laughs) launch ie6 and up Never patched, MSS obviously. Tape. Yeah, if it's running IE six. Uh, By the way, she says I uh, convinced, or he says I convinced my dad to purchase SpinRight last year, and it saved him from losing his entire novel. We have been spin writing every two months ever since. When that, there you go. That must make you feel good. It does. That's, yeah. that's yeah. Just somebody's great. using your stuff uh, to save their life. Yeah. Anyway, Trevor, thank you,
1: thank you for the story. <sighs> story. I just <laughs> I get the biggest kick out of you know he's scanning his items and. <laughs> You know, it's Windows, so, of course, it was going to freeze sooner or later, and it chose to do it right then. And then it restarts itself and doesn't launch into the app, it just gives him a desktop and where he sees IE6, which he probably double taps on the touchscreen, and whoop up comes IE6 and brings up the news on the MSN.com <laughs> site.
0: I just love it. Oh, I guess he could have run Windows Update, but that would probably have broken everything. <laughs> you broke our computer. <sighs> oh goodness! And he as he says, I'm not putting my credit card in one of these suckers again. No, I don't blame him. Nor wow. will I. Wow, I don't like those automatic checkouts anyway. But now I really, of course, you can't. You know, I'm, they're probably using the same system for the che- the checkers. I mean, it's probably exactly the same system.
1: Yeah, in Terminal Six.
0: Terminal Six. <laughs> <laughs> Question two: Doug Zuckerman, Bethesda, Maryland, asks about finding Q and A questions. Steve, I just a suggestion for the future. I think it'd be a great addition to the website. But wouldn't it be nice if, on the main Security Now page, in the topic title for each Q and A episode of Security Now, it showed the specific questions you answered in that episode? I find that not only do I listen to your show for new information, I also use it for reference, and it's difficult to find the right Q A shows. Uh, to go back to when the questions aren't listed. Anyway, of course, your site has tons of great resources as it is. I'm not trying to suggest you guys don't do enough already. I just think it'd be a really good enhancement if you ever feel like it. I think well, we might do that ourselves in um, our show notes, don't we? Well, the problem is that the
1: questions are often hard to summarize. I mean, what would I write for that question that right. Doug just asked? Yeah, well,
0: yeah you're right. It's a good point.
1: And, and the good news is that this is that we have the transcripts for everything, and those are indexed by Google and other search engines. I had an experience just a couple of days ago of where, I don't remember, I was at Starbucks, of course, and I was looking something up. And the second link that came up in Google search results for the keywords that I was searching was one of our own podcasts. And it was number 120. Was was Oh, I, I put in TrueCrypt and, and bootedNG. Because uh, I was talking to a buddy of mine who had dropped by, and he was wondering whether you could use TrueCrypt and bootedNG at the same time. And I said, gee, that's an interesting question, because I could see that there could be a boot sector, you know, track zero collision, much as there was initially with TrueCrypt and some of the Adobe copy protection stuff, the Macromedia stuff. So I put into Google... space booted NG, and in Security Now episode 120, uh, we were talking about that. And so it was the second link that Google brought up. I thought, hey, now, this is exactly why, you know, we're doing transcripts. That's really the point, yep. Aside from the fact that people really do like to read along or read them instead of listen to them in some cases. And so, you know, we've got Elaine doing a great job of that. So, Doug, the only thing I could suggest is that on the Security Now page... At GRC, as you as you notice, securitynow.htm at GRC, um, there is a search box on the upper right, and it will search only Security Now podcasts if you configure it that way. If you ask for that, it will limit itself to, to, to Security Now. And so put in some keywords, and you can probably find the podcast. I think that's much more practical than trying to summarize the questions in each of the uh Q and as which they're just
0: be really hard to to summarize them. Well, but I also will point you to our wiki.twit.tv. We do show notes for all the shows there, and then we have very detailed show notes uh including the questions uh there for each episode. And uh on FriendFeed as we're doing the show, we have a FriendFeed conversation for every show that we do on the network. Uh if you go to friendfeed.com slash twit dash conversations, I don't think you have to sign up to see these friendfeed.com slash twit dash conversations you can go back through all the shows and as we ask the questions of steve i post the entire text of the question in there so there are a number of places you can go uh these will also be googled but there are a number of places you could go uh to find that information but our wiki.twit.tv has very complete show notes uh including time code um and i i don't know who's doing that but i thank that person for uh, doing all that effort because that's that's a heck of a lot of work to uh, to put in there so uh thank you for for all your hard work on that let me actually if i look at the history i might be able to to see we have it's nice steve we have uh listeners who um use the wiki which is a, a media wiki it's the same as uh, wikipedia uh to really enhance the content of uh, the of, of the of the website and we do that for the same exact reason i mean uh, the problem with a podcast it isn't uh, searchable so having text Related to the content, uh, so that you can search on Google is so important, I think, as time goes by. Um, so, thank you, Doug, for that uh, question. Uh, and thank you to A. Kalair and M1N Mind Tricks, A. Kalair Mind Tricks, uh, for putting in all that information in our show notes. Uh, Brad Banco in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. What, isn't that where? Bailey Savings and Loan was? I don't know. Asked about assembly language. I listen to your podcast from time to time. Chess Griffin of the Linux Reality Podcast pointed it to me when Vista opened my eyes to the need for an alternative to Microsoft software. By the way, I use Fedora Linux quite a lot. Really love it. 30 seconds to boot, 30 seconds to desktop, 30 seconds to shut down on a 10-year-old machine. The only thing that I still use Windows for are my scanner and TurboTax. My my question is you mentioned you develop your software in assembly language doesn't that mean your work is tied to a particular presumably intel process architecture or has assembly language programming advanced to the point that you can write architecture independent code my background's mainly science with computing as a hobby and a tool thanks enjoy your show well he's exactly right um what assembly language is is the
1: actual instruction set of the machine so i've been programming um intel assembly code ever since the ibm pc happened before that it was the 6502 chip on the apple II machine and also the atari and the commodore machines so you know those the the, the 6502 was on multiple platforms so i i had I, I was able to use a single programming language among those manufacturers who were all using that chip in this case of course um the intel architecture is dominant it for better or worse won out over the power pc because people liked the idea that the clock rate was faster on the intel chip even though you could argue that the power pc being a very nice risk design or risk heavily risk influenced architecture was doing more per cycle than the intel was still that's you know people wanted intel chips for whatever reason um so it is the case that I'm definitely writing platform tied code but I'm writing it for almost all the machines out there I mean what I guess you have PDAs for example which are using ARM chips and I couldn't I couldn't use Intel assembly language for writing to that platform on the other hand there is when you're an assembly language programmer you're dealing with, you know, binary registers and motions of data among registers, and you're, you're at a low level such that moving everything you know to a different platform isn't difficult. I mean, if someone said, Steve, we need you to write something for the ARM processor, which I've, I've never programmed before, I would just sit down with the instruction reference and go, okay, how does the ARM add What's the instruction for subtract? What's the instruction for load and move? So I can easily map everything I know, all the experience that I have on one one low-level architecture onto another. It's just a matter of knowing what the instructions are. Just as I went back, you know, turned the clock back and was writing code for PDP-8, it's like, oh, what a quaint little machine. But,
0: <laughs> you know, all the rules still apply. Well, you have even more dependencies than just the, uh, the code because you use, uh, don't you use uh, interrupts? Uh, uh on the on the hardware oh yeah i mean you, you're right it's not just the instruction set it's the I whole mean, you architecture could, you could in it's... theory i mean an intel uh, mac runs intel but you're writing much not just to the processor you're writing to the bios you're writing correct to, you know so you it's not portable beyond a pc all the hardware resources of that machine which answers right. the question people often ask me why is there no mac version <laughs> right so, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you get advantages with hardware uh, dependence, but uh, you also that's the disadvantage is not portable. Yes. That's why I think most of the world's moved to, uh, you know, higher level languages for most of the code. Way most. Yeah. Way, yeah. way most yeah. of the world. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Taylor, Walnut, California wants to know Steve's secret. What is your secret? I have a quick comment and a question. I've been listening to your wonderful netcast since episode one. Lately, I've gotten way behind. I'm still in January. Uh, <laughs> we just made him a lot more behind. I just finished listening to an episode where you mentioned the, the PDP-8. I immediately headed over to SpareTimeGizmos.com to find out Ah, uh, he sold out of the front panels this spring and has no intention of making more. Oh, well, my fault for not staying up to date. As for my question, how do you do it? How do you wrap your mind around all the complexities of what you do? Is it an inborn ability or is there something else in the mix? After listening to one of your episodes, my brain feels like it ran headlong into a brick wall. Help me, Steve. I want to be smarter. I need to be smarter. I always think of it in this way. I'm just smart enough to know how dumb I really am. I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that one, Brian. I'm right there with you.
1: Well, okay. I, I've been wanting to say something along these lines for a while. And that is that, um, you know, you and I, Leah, have been around for a long time. So you know i'm i'm drawing from a large base of of stuff that i learned a long time ago and i also have extensive knowledge about a relatively narrow category of things but this format of the podcast does allow me to to seem to have more facts at my grasp than i do i spend uh, not, a, not a day, but many hours preparing for the podcast. And so, for example, I don't have RFC numbers memorized or I don't have, you know, MD5 hashes of things memorized. I I focus on, on the topic of the podcast for many hours beforehand, you know, brushing up and bringing myself up to speed, getting all revved up and ready to go so that, you know, during an hour, an hour and a half, I I'm at the top of my game on whatever topic we're discussing and a couple of weeks from the a couple of weeks later you know it's all a blur
0: <laughs> oh thank you for admitting that it is <laughs> it's all a blur to me a couple of minutes later but uh, at least <laughs> well so, you know as often as the case uh when when somebody is really working hard it makes it look easy and you work really hard to make it look easy well yeah i
1: mean i I love the topic. I love the technology. I understand, you know, the fundamentals of this stuff, but nobody could know everything that's going on in every corner of the industry. And I certainly don't. I mean, I've got, you know, a day job and I'm I'm focused on one area. And I would argue where I'm focused, I'm, I'm, you know, it's hard to fool me, but there's, you know. I can't talk about just that all the time. So we're talking about much more. And so, you know, I'll pick a topic. I'll say, oh, this is something neat that that I, I think would interest our listeners. And, you know, I then focus myself on that with the advantage of a lot of background that helps me helps me digest it quickly. But you know the the excruciating minutia and details. Again, it's like somebody will. You know, sometimes I I, I run across a question about something from a few weeks ago, and I go, oh boy, I, we were talking about that. What what is the answer to that one? You know. So anyway, I just wanted to say that you know, in response to Brian's completely understandable, uh, you know, question about wow, you know, how is there so much here? It's like okay, Brian, I'm cheating. Um, <laughs> It, I it's, do. Here,
0: it's here today, it's gone tomorrow. <laughs> I forget it all very quickly, too. <laughs> I make more mistakes than you do. Um, Matt Ludlam in Waybridge, London, wants a bit of help with cookie programming. He says, Steve, I love the show. I've been a long-time listener since the very first episode. And I'd like your opinion on the subject of storing data in cookies. I want to store a cookie. He's obviously writing web applications here. I want to store a cookie on a user's machine that allows them to automatically log in to my system. I want this cookie to have a lifespan of about seven days. And I don't trust the users. I don't have a problem with users seeing the information. I just don't want it changed. My thoughts are to create a cookie which has the information I care about, login, password, etc., an expires date, and a hash total. I would take each of the pieces of data and put them through a hash, along with some salt, which is in one of your secure passwords. This would be the hash total that I store on the browser cookie with other data. The salt would never leave the server, my server, so it's a secret. Is this system resistant to the data being changed? On a relating su- related subject, I don't want to store the password in a cookie in clear text, so what would you advise? If I store the password hashed with the user ID, is that enough, or do I need to add some more secret salt? Finally, how can I stop the user from copying a cookie from one machine to another? If I try to add the IP address of their machine, then I probably have the address of their company's NAT router, so it does not get tied to a single machine, rather an organization. And finally, am I doing this the right way, or is there a far better way of doing it? Thanks in advance for your help and advice. A little cookie programming advice. Yeah, and an interesting question. I would say
1: there, are um, there surprisingly, it sort of is a right and wrong way to approach this problem. The The biggest question that i would have for matt is is does he have the ability to store stuff at his end on his server we know that he can have keys and salt but the question is can he store information is there a, does he have the ability does he have access to some sort of a database even a even a simple database that he could write himself you know sort of a flat file database the point is you you either ...store the data in the cookie, the data itself in the cookie, or you just store a pointer to data that you're maintaining on the back end, on the server side. So it's certainly not necessary to go through any of these gyrations if you've got the ability, if you've got state, if you can store state of some sort on the server end... In which case, you would just take a counter. You'd take uh, like a 128-bit counter and you'd encrypt it with a, your own secret symmetric key that would turn the counter, which starts at zero and runs up to you know, all one bits, it would turn it into a completely pseudo-random looking token. And so that the unencrypted counter would just be a record number in your own little private database. You encrypt it, and that's what you store in the cookie. So the cookie itself has no data. It just has this, as we, we used the word two weeks ago, a nonce, a, a, a one-time-use little blurb, which is completely random-looking. The user could change it if they wanted, but when it came back to you and was decrypted, it would be nonsense. Because you would know what the valid range of of values was, zero to some limit, and if they made any change to it, it would send it off. When when that was decrypted, it would completely turn into nonsense. So, it's you know there's a a, a simple solution, but it does require that you're storing no data in the cookie. You're just essentially you're storing a pointer, an encrypted pointer to a record in your own database back on the server. And of course, then you've got all kinds of flexibility. Username, password, expiration date, you know, you can you can put as much data there as you want to and and manage that. If you if for some reason you cannot, you don't have the ability to to have a database, to have any state stored at the server side, then you have no choice other than to store that data in the user's browser. In a cookie that you give them. And and there, again, the, the, the solution is simple. And that is you simply use your own secret encryption, your own secret key to take the data that you've got and, you know, concatenate it into a record and um, encrypt it. You'll want to use you you'll want to hash it so that you generate a, a signature so that it's essentially digitally signed using the techniques we've talked about before use one key for a keyed hash in order to to create a digital signature and then encrypt that with a different key that's going to be a blob of data which you can safely put on the user's browser it's just it means it's, it's nonsense for them they again they can't change it it means nothing to them not, there's nothing that they can do to gain any leverage. Anything they do to like mess with it will just break it. And then every time they have a, a browser transaction, well, apparently that you want to use that for allowing them back into your website for a period of seven days. Well, that that cookie would be sent back to you. You decrypt it with your with, with your symmetric key. You you verify the the hash of it using a different key. That tells you that um, it, it tells you that nothing has happened to change it. And with every single transaction, you get all the data back that you want to store username, password, expiration date. You're able to look at those things, decide what you want to do with them and permit or not um, the user to, to proceed. So you're, you're you either in the first case, you're storing the data at your end and just giving them a little token for it, a pointer to it, or in the second case, you give them all the data to store in their cookie and they give it back to you every time. So, you know, either way will, will work. And it's just a function of what, what you're um, most comfortable with and what makes sense based on the capabilities you've got at the server end. The last question you asked was, is there a way to prevent them from moving it from machine to machine? And I cannot see any way to do that without involving scripting. If you've got scripting involved and and you can, like the login facility, can have JavaScript running, then you could certainly incorporate something into the cookie which, which binds to something unique about their machine. Can you see the, mach- the MAC address? Can you... Uh, you could use the MAC address. In, in, for example, if this was on Windows, there are various, uh, you know, GUIDs, GUIDs um, for for Windows. There, there, there are various things that are pretty much guaranteed to be unique from one machine to another. So, if you incorporated that into the cookie, and then when they attempted to relog in, you would again use some script to verify that. Then I could see how you could lock it to a given machine, but you'd have to have something active on the client side. Um, otherwise, a browser is a browser is a browser, and if you move the cookie to a different machine, then it would be able. It, it would look the same from your viewpoint from the server end. Uh, a client making that that request, you really wouldn't see any difference. And you know there are there there's. There's metadata that browsers send along with their queries that might be different from one machine to another, like what version of the browser, what, you know, what version of Adobe and PDF reader and other things sort of tack themselves on to the queries. So you might see some difference, but if you really need to prevent it from being moved, you have to do something with scripting
0: locally on, on, on the machine. And I think that solves the problem. In just a second, we're going to talk to uh, talk about John's question. He's in Indiana and he wants to know how secure it is tying doing the tethering of your cell phone to your laptop for uh, for data access. Before we do, I do want to mention our sponsor, the good folks at Go to My PC who make this show possible. We really love our sponsors because uh, they uh, pay the ad fees to get you know their ads on the air, and of course we always are hand we handpick these guys to make sure that they're uh, you know good quality companies. And I've known these at citrix for more than a decade so i i can vouch for them. but uh thanks to them they may make these shows possible they pay the expenses uh, of doing the show and and which are getting less and less cons- inconsiderable all the time so thank you uh, go to my pc and i invite you all to try go to my pc it's remote access now i know people who listen to this show probably know a lot about remote access we've talked about vpns we've talked about hamachi uh, we've talked about uh, Windows remote access, Apple's remote access, remote desktop. We've talked about every kind of remote access. And they may say, well, why should I uh, pay for GoToMyPC? So let me tell you why it's worth it. Uh, first of all, Go to My PC is free for the first 30 days, so you can try it and see if you like it better. It is very easy to install, and I think that that's Uh, Critical, maybe not so much for you guys, unless you've tried installing a VPN, and then you might agree that it's not an inconsiderable, uh, not an unimportant feature. Uh, It also uh, is easy for your friends and family to use, and I think that that's another important point. If you're telling people about uh, setting up remote access, go to my PC, does NAT traversal, we've talked about that before, so there's no port forwarding, there's no DMZing. Uh, that in itself makes it more secure, but because it uses NAT traversal, it means it's very easy to set up. It's literally, you go to go to mypc.com, you set up an account. If you go to go to mypc.com slash security now, you'll set up that account for free. Click download. Download's a small Java stub. It's not very big. Takes less than two minutes to do the whole thing, and now it's on your system. And wherever you go, an internet cafe, a hotel, you don't need to set up a VPN. You log on to go to mypc.com with your secure credential... You now have 128-bit encrypted SSL access to go to my PC and on, then to your system. So it is—it li- is a tunnel, just like a VPN, uh, using the most secure uh, possible connection, SSL. And you can now see your desktop. You could do anything you could do if you were sitting in front of it. You could send and receive email. You could run programs. The speed is remarkable. This is, you know, something we shouldn't ignore. You know, there are remote access solutions. Uh, that are free, but they are often very slow, very hard to configure, not secure. This is all of the above. Secure, easy, very speedy. These guys have tuned this for years. They've made it the best out there. Many awards to their name, uh, and and my personal recommendation, I want you to give it a try. Go to mypc.com slash security now. 30 days free, 30 days so you can try it. Go to mypc.com security now. We thank them so much for their uh, support uh, of the show. We really do appreciate it. Steve, let's talk tethering. John in okay. Indiana wonders about the security of tethering his cell phone to his laptop. Thank you both for your time. Leo, uh, I can thank you for turning me on to the podcast. So many so, I can't keep up. <laughs> All of Twitch shows help me stay on top of the tech news. And that lets me help people that come to me asking for advice. So thank you for your time and energy. You're welcome. Security now is still my favorite. Yay. I'd like to hear your thoughts, Steve, on the security of connecting to the internet on a laptop via tethering from a cell phone. This is something uh, they've added to, you know, the Palm Pre does it, I think. They've added it to the iPhone once AT&T says okay. Um, I guess you're not behind a router, uh, as you usually suggest. Can I assume that uh, I'm at risk, that uh, not having a router uh, makes me uh, less secure on a cell phone access? And does the same thing happen with these Cell phone access cards, EVDO cards. What about those? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, the
1: The only reservation I have about a cell phone tether, as opposed to a cell phone access card, is that we have seen instances of cell phones themselves being compromised. Right. That is, you know, there it's a computer; it's running. An operating system. It's got a browser. It's got instant messaging. It's got all those things that tend to have problems. And we mentioned two weeks ago that when uh, the iPhone was updated to version 3.0, more than forty some security problems were patched. Many of them were like can take over your phone remotely and and you know execute remote code, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we know that. Many phones also have Bluetooth and Bluetooth is another vector of real security concern because people often leave them in discoverable mode and there are many well-known exploits where you can, you know, take over somebody's phone using their 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 discoverable Bluetooth pairing and um and so the problem is when you when you combine that with its use as an internet modem and tether it to your laptop you're you're essentially you know hooking two computers together one which tends to be exposed to a lot of threats so as opposed to a cell phone access card which is just a dumb cellular modem and itself cannot be compromised so you know from a from a security standpoint i would be much more comfortable using a cell phone access card than tethering my phone to to the computer but um uh, aside from that, the cell phone service itself, that is, you know, the technology of cellular communications, is is secure, but not nearly as secure as is state-of-the-art. It is definitely the case that, that um, all of the different cell phone technologies can be cracked and have been cracked. They go to a great extent to obscure the traffic, and so I would call it ob- obscuration rather than security. Because, for example, um, some of the um, cell phone technology use uh, cleverly designed shift registers of with with, with prime number repetitions to create pseudo random data. Which is mixed in then XORed with the stream of of data leaving the phone. Well, it means that it's good security, but it's far from from you know the type of security we talk about on this show as being absolutely uncrackable. And it has been cracked. The, I mean, all of the cell phone technologies have been cracked. So there's no question that you know. NSA people and then, you know, even much less skilled hackers are able to to get into that conversation. So so you should consider that the, your use of a cell phone communication is not much more secure than a, an open Wi-Fi high, hotspot. I mean, it, it is more secure than that because a, a hotspot is just sniffable with anything. But, you know, and so it takes much more security or much more technology to crack a cellular connection, but it is definitely crackable in in, in a in a short, re- relatively short length of time. So you should think in terms of. Using a VPN, making sure you're using a, an SSL, you know, HTTPS connection when you do things. The sorts of things that you would do if you were in a wi- an open Wi-Fi hi- hotspot mm. wow. in
0: order to have the kind of security th- that, you know, you probably want to have. I have an interesting hybrid product I've been using. It's called a MiFi, and it takes an EVDO connection, um, you know, via Verizon, and it yeah. has a hotspot a Wi-Fi access point. Built into it, so it is a router with an. Yeah, EV- that's the worst of all worlds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just made me think. God. Well, the router I turned on WPA, Good. so at least I have that. But yeah. so they'd have to crack the EVDO to make that.
1: Yeah, and again, it's not easy. But every one of the uh, every one of the of the cell phone standards has been cracked. They've got the, wow. the problem I didn't is know that they were designed a long time ago. They were designed with, but back when we had much weaker hardware. So, in the same way that the original Wi Fi with its WEP was designed, it's like, okay, this is good enough to secure. Well, you know, the hardware grew in in capacity. But we, they, but a, a standard had been established. Similarly, these cellular standards—I mean, the hardware to implement them—is worldwide spread out in towers and in pockets all over the globe. You can't change it now. And the bad news is, it was it was regarded as strong back then. But also, it was a clear compromise because the hardware, the cellular handset hardware. Was so low power in terms of computing power that they they couldn't do much more than they did. So they said, well, this is as good as we can get now. The problem is the technology has gone, has made huge leaps since then. The standard hasn't changed. Yeah. So you really want, you really, I mean, if security is a concern, you want to provide your own wrapper, your own security wrapper around your traffic so that if, if anybody, I mean, and I doubt this is happening. And remember that, you know, the NSA doesn't have to crack it in the air. They just have to go visit the base station at right.
0: the other end. And right. it's it's right. been cracked for them. They have access to everything. There's presumably. much easier yeah. ways to do this. Yes. yes. If, if you've got the clout. Uh, Brandon in Portland, Oregon, wonders if size really does matter. Dear Stephen Leo, I have a question about hard drive data integrity and how it declines as hard drive storage and density goes up. I've heard you mention in the past that as hard drive density goes up, the margin for error goes down, which in turn requires more error correcting due to the density at which the data is stored. I thought I heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, that your comfort zone for hard drives is around 500 gigabytes and lower. Anything above that density has a lar- too large a chance for error for Steve. My question is this, is a terabyte drive really any less robust than a drive with much lower density? Isn't a terabyte drive usually four 250 gigabyte drive platters in one drive enclosure? In this case, wouldn't a terabyte drive be just as reliable as a 250 gigabyte drive, seeing as how the data is being stored in essentially four 250 gigabyte drives? I'd love to know the verdict and why, especially since you make everything that requires a propeller hat so simple to understand. Oh, especially you, since you do that. Love the podcast, listening since day one, and looking forward to it every week. Next Friday is my paycheck at a real job, so I'm looking forward to buying my first copy of Spinrite, and I've been a Twit supporter and donator since day one. Thank you, and thanks for uh, both of your hard work. Thank you, Brandon. So, I, actually, I don't know if that's the case. Arial, what you're talking about is aerial density, the amount of bits squoze onto a single platter, right? Squoze, or yeah. Or a single cubic centimeter, I guess. See how Elaine spells <laughs> squoze. squoze. <laughs> um,
1: I have to confess that I think this is largely me be, sort of being you're, an you're old curmudgeon. curmudgeon. Yes, yes, that's the word I would use. <laughs> yeah. um, he's, Brandon is correct that... The, you'll notice that drives jump in capacity by sort of fixed numbers, which is the number is the amount of bytes that go on a platter. So you'll have like the 40 gig and the 80 gig and the 160 and the 320, and it's like is it any is it any surprise that these things are jumping by that amount? That is, literally, they put another platter in and it doubled it, or another one, and it's, now it went up by two-thirds of, of that size, and so forth. So it it is the case that they, they develop a technology that fits a certain density on, on a surface. And in some cases, they'll leave one surface unused because that's what their marketing department tells them to do, even though it doesn't make any sense logically. Now, is four 250-gig platters the same reliability if they're put in a single drive as if they were in four drives. I, You could argue that if you had them in four separate drives, you could run RAID on them. So you'd lose the equivalent of one drive, yet that would give you dramatically more reliability because then if any one drive died, you've still got 100% of your data. Whereas the more data you put in a in a single enclosure, the more it's sort of like the the problem of the airliner that crashes. It's like, well, boy, you know, we lost a lot of people when that happened. Um, whereas, you know, you could you you also say, well, more people die on the road every day in little onesie accidents that don't draw a, nearly as much attention. So, I mean, the 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 reliability question is an interesting one. I'm I would have to say that. You know, contemporary drives are extremely reliable, but you never want to be in a position where losing one really creates a problem for you because they die. And so, for example, as I've said before, there's no system I have where I have mission critical data, where I don't have a RAID and some sort of on the fly in the background backup happening you really do you really do want to make sure that a that a c- catastrophic loss of a drive is not something unrecoverable because drives die yeah a very and I'm glad that brandon's going to be buying a copy of spinright so he'll be he'll be <laughs> he'll be prepared
0: when one does drives die that's the bad news so are you buying terabyte drives now i've had no occasion to. Because, you know, assembly language doesn't take up that much right. space, Leo. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I bu- we're, we buy a six, of them, six of them at a time, you know, I, and we record everything on terabyte drives. Yep. And I'm sure we'll go to a, a bigger size at some point. But right now, the sweet spot, I mean, uh, a Caviar Green uh, Western Digital drive is about 85 bucks from Newegg wow. Uh, wow. for a terabyte. Wow. And uh, these are really good drives there. You know, they run a little uh, slower. Um, but the aerial density is so high, they don't feel slower. The, but the RPMs, I think, are fifty four hundred. So it's it's. It, I think that. Of course, this isn't mission critical either, right? I mean, these are just recordings of the shows and stuff. Yeah, it's just what we do all day. All. <laughs> well, we have other we have other recordings. <laughs> <laughs> these are more like archives. I don't, you know, I actually don't do anything with them right now. Yeah. Uh, but the, but we'll have them. I you know I don't know if somebody will want them someday. That's Look good, back, you- the good old days. Back, keep back before uh, aliens took over the uh, the world and uh, and eliminate all security flaws, Scott Terriano in Port Prairie, Port Prairie, not sure how you say that, Port Prairie, South Australia says, Steve's non VPN idea is partly original. Hi, Steve Leo, your idea. I'm sorry, I won't do this. Enough. Your idea of a non VPN is indeed a fantastic idea and much better than the traditional VPN. However. Something very similar has unfortunately been done in the past. In fact, I'm currently running a similar setup myself. I was shown how to do this by my cousin, who is 16 years old, who had implemented everything you described except for the encryption and configuration part of what you described using OpenBSD's PF, which is their packet filter program. I have my implementation and IP tables under Linux. Since both my client and my router run Linux, and I have the NetFilter kernel module located. two things your solution cleverly applies, which my and my cousins do not, is encryption. Excuse me, encryption, which is obviously important if you have sensitive information, and the easy configuration. Writing PF or IP tables rules by hand is definitely not for the faint of heart. I know I've done it. Uh, Of course, if you're using Windows, neither IP tables nor PF are available, so I guess it's unique for those folks. So is what he's talking about similar to what you were talking about? Okay, this
1: is an interesting uh, this question caught my attention because he describes he says something very similar has unfortunately been done in the past. As if as if the fact that I'm doing something similar to what was done before is unfortunate, (laughs) like
0: it wasn't completely original or something.
1: Yes. And that's exactly it. There was somebody in our news groups. When he heard about my idea with the, with the Star Trek bun-ons of reversing... You, you know, didn't invent that, you know. <laughs> well, he was disappointed because he realized that I'm so old that I probably did it before he did. Oh. And, and, I, and I, I wrote back and I said, wait a minute. I said, it's not about who did it first. It's that you had all the fun... Yeah, of being confronted with a problem there you go. and coming up with a solution. No, Leo, I mean, I this is something I feel so fundamentally it's it's a weird thing. I don't know if I'm strange or if there's something that I'm not understanding. But, you know, like I independently invented stateless TCP connections, which I later found were called sin cookies and they've been done. And it's like I didn't feel it all diminished because. I independently invented something really cool. So what if I wasn't first? I I came up with it. And like and the, and the, this guy posting in the news group who said, "Hey, you know, gee, I really thought that that was mine." Unique. Well, it was yours, you know? If you did it by yourself, you had a problem, you scratched your head, and you came up with a solution. That's the joy. I mean, that's the benefit. The 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 fun of being out there, being creative, and coming up with solutions. So, I don't feel in any way that it's unfortunate. For example, that the idea of port shifting isn't was was done before, or isn't unique with me. I, I didn't really think it probably was. It was a problem, and I found a solution. And so, the, I just sort of want to address. Because this did come up in the context before, and it has before. And no doubt, as I'm doing a v, you know this, this CryptoLink VPN, there are things that are going to be absolutely new. But I'm also going to be trotting well-trodden territory, doing things other people have done before. I want to solve the problem myself. I don't want to take somebody else's code. I don't want to take somebody else's idea. I want to scratch my head and say, okay, great, people have done it before. I'm going to challenge whether theirs is the best way it can possibly be done. People have done router traversal. Great. I haven't done it. Maybe I'll come up with something better. Maybe not. I don't know. But I am I mean, the joy is in doing it. The reason I'm wanting to tackle this is there are problems I haven't faced before. And so I, I just, you know, it, it's a I don't get that psychology, that sense that that I mean, I understand from an intellectual property standpoint and patents and who came first and who came second, you know, that's got to be honored. And I I respect that. But the idea of independently solving a problem, that's where I think the value is. That's where you learn something. I'm going to learn a lot writing CryptoLink. I can't wait. Yeah. Even if a lot of it's been done before,
0: I don't care. There is that funny uh, thing going around that, you, you know, you have to be first I think the internet really uh uh, uh encourages that. You got to be the first uh to do something or say something or post something. And uh you're right. You get the you get the pleasure out of uh uh doing it regardless of whether you're first or not.
1: Yeah, yeah. I,
0: I I just don't get that it diminishes what
1: I do in any way that it isn't first. It's hey, it's mine. So yeah. it's been done before, okay? That was theirs. <laughs> and and the guy who came up with reversing English twice Good for him. I mean, yeah, I did it. You know, I didn't, there was no internet to publish it, but I i don't care. It was just fun. For I had to fun do it. doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad he came up with the same solution. Yeah. Bravo. Yeah. All right.
0: Here's one from Tom Schumann in Minneapolis. We were talking on an episode sometime back about teaching teenagers computing. Hi, Steve. Thanks to you and Leo for the program. I'm a longtime listener and SpinRite user since version two. Wow. On my spacious 20 megabyte. Huh. Seagate st 251 Oh, I had a few of those. Yeah. I remember when 20 megabytes was a lot. Well, it's all you needed, Leo. <laughs> I used Spinrite to change the sector interleave. Oh, I remember doing that on the drive. So my yep. X-T, clone, XT clone in turbo mode would approach the full 7.44 megahertz of the processor. <laughs> That's right. There was a default interleave, but if you wanted to tweak it, you could.
1: And remember the, the XT clones? There, there was like a compatibility mode where they would run at 4.77, right. which was the original speed. Right. But, ooh, you could juice them up to 8 megahertz. And then it was like really fast.
0: <laughs> I, I, I had a machine like that, and uh, the, I know, it, and it never was stable. Nope. <laughs> it could not handle 744. And, you know, we just had all sorts of stability issues. 7 megahertz? My phone does that when it's just thinking, you know, when it's just waiting for me. I mean, it's ridiculous. Leo has expressed interest in teaching a programming class. Let me say first, I have no vested interest in what I am about to suggest. Just another idea he might consider. ICECOM, that's the Institute for Security and Open Methodologies, has a program called Hacker High School. I like that. Yeah. It teaches security awareness for teens. Oh, we're definitely adding that to the curriculum. Yes. Well, I don't like the name of the program. Hacking is not what it used to be. The program itself is awesome and would be terrific if taught by someone with a background in programming and a background in the history of the industry, a sense about how we got where we are today. Perhaps the gang at Tech Guy Labs would find the programming interesting fodder for a series of videos. Hmm. I can't imagine anyone else that could do it better. Check it out at hackerhighschool.org. Just a thought. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Tom. What a great suggestion. I want to say that I, I looked at it and it
1: is really nice. And I mean, I immediately... You know, you know, high school kids—they would love the idea. I mean, hacking is glamorous and and immediately hooks them. You know, just you know, much more so than than bit twiddling would. And uh, anyway, the the site is really nice, hackerhighschool.org. And so I wanted to—I wanted not only for you, Leo, to run across it, but to also uh, aim our listeners at it because they may well have their own teenagers uh, or know
0: some that might get a kick out of this too. So it teaches you how to be secure online, basically. Is that it?
1: Yeah. um, It's, well, it's just, it's um, uh, like, yes, security awareness. Like what's going on? How does this stuff work? What, you know, where, you know, and I mean, I can't think of anything more important for, for, you know, teenage kids to get a grip on as they're moving out into the world and computers and laptops and cell phones and the Internet is, you know, tomorrow's reality. I mean, it's today's reality. But, you know, certainly it's going to be with them for their entire lives. Neat. Neat.
0: And apparently not much more secure than it is today. Yeah. Brad Bienhoff in San Diego, California, wants a little more detail on CryptoLink. He says, hi, Steve. In episode 200, you read a letter of mine asking about the NAT traversal capabilities of your non-VPN CryptoLink solution. You mentioned that advanced users will be able to configure port forwarding, but a third party will be available for those who won't or can't do so. Are you going to be providing this third party service? If so, what will be the terms of that service? I'm, of course, referring to the possibility of subscription fees and so forth. If you're not going to provide the third party service, will you be relying on others to develop their own CryptoLink connection services or Will there be a solution for advanced users to offer themselves as that third party using a coordinating service similar to those used by BitTorrent, Tor, and Seti at home? What's the plan? I have no idea. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> I mean, and again, this is this. I
1: didn't really intend this to feed off of my prior rant about first invention, um, but really, um, I know. I know where my heart is. My heart is that. Buying CryptoLink gives you access to everything it is for life, forever. No subscription fees, no recurring anything, nothing. I mean, that's really what differentiates it from service-oriented offerings, which are very different from the tool. Um, People in the news groups have asked, hey, will there be a per system fee of some sort? The answer is no. That is, an individual who owns it can use it, For their own purposes, as much as they want, on as many systems as they want, wherever they have a problem that CryptoLink can solve. Um, I'm hoping to have the most sophisticated and capable NAT traversal system ever created. I mean, that's one of the reasons I want to do this. I just don't want to say, oh, I have it. I want to be able to say, mine nails anyone else's NAT traversal that's ever done it before and so all kinds of technology will come out of this i know that for example we will have a web based nat router characterization service much like we have now shields up testing your security the dns spoofability system that we'll be talking about before long and you know perfect perfect passwords and other stuff there will also be a nat router characterizer where users will be able to find out exactly how their nats work Because I'm going to have to know that in order to design the technology to traverse them. So there'll be things that that fall out from this research, which is really going to be fun and interesting and, and useful. I imagine that GRC will have to provide that rendezvous service because I think... My plan is that I'm going to be doing things that have never been done before to make the, the the Nat traversal more robust than anybody else's. At the same time, I don't like the idea, as I've said, of of anyone depending on us. If GRC was was DDoSed and we were gone, I wouldn't want to be you know to 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 f- for people not to have an alternative. So my intention is that the protocols will be open. That it would be possible for someone else to create such a third-party service. There are publicly available um, NAT traversal facilities. Maybe you could downgrade to one of those if you didn't want to use GRC or couldn't. But it's also the case that you don't need to use that at all if you were able to map a port through your router. Then, then anybody, then, then you would be able to connect to anybody, and anybody would be able to connect to you. So, you know, a lot of this is going to be a journey. Um, I know it'll be interesting for everyone who wants to participate in the news groups while I'm churning out this technology. Great.
0: But uh, there is going to be some cost if you do a third-party server. It wouldn't be unreasonable to charge for that. I don't think anybody would think any of the less of you. That's how you do the Nat traversal is you have a third party that they both connect to.
1: I would never do that. I mean, okay. my 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 plan is for the ongoing sales of CryptoLink to Support provide yeah. for the service. I mean, the frank the fact is, Leo bandwidth costs nothing these right. days. Right. I mean, I'm running servers and 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 the I, I would not be ever. I I would never be proxying the data. That is, for example, the 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 the, the way. Um, the way nat traversal works in the go to my pc case for example is they are they are transiting the data both endpoints connect out to them and so they're transiting the data that's it, it's trivial to do that but it does require that they, that they then be a carrier capable of handling all the bandwidth my approach is never to be involved in the data transit i just want to introduce the two endpoints to each other and so that somebody looking at the traffic somebody with a with a with a packet capture can see that you know grc or any other rendezvous service is not involved in that in in that traffic there's there's thus it, it follows my tno my trust no one model of saying we don't want to be involved so this is provably secure yeah
0: Moving along, a, a note from Paul Scott in Las Vegas, Nevada. A uh, quick note about Apple's Airport Express. He says, I love the show. I've been listening from day one. I feel a little behind, and while catching up, heard a comment from a listener that he uses Airport Express as a way of hiding his machine behind a NAT router, you know, when he's in a hotel or traveling. Um, and Steve asked if there if there's a Windows software to configure the Airport Express. The answer is yes. Apple has created an airport configuration utility for Windows. It works just fine in my experience. I've used it when I didn't have my MacBook Pro handy to fix someone's Time Machine Base Station. Apple in recent years has done a pretty good job creating Windows software, and making their OS play nice. That's great news. Didn't know that. Yep, nor did I, so
1: I wanted to make sure our listeners knew because the question did come up. We when we were talking about it before, it's like, yeah. well, you know, would this work with you know in a Windows only environment? And Paul says yes, absolutely.
0: Finally, our last question from Amir Katz in Kafar Saba, Israel. He wonders about TPM, the Trusted Platform Module. Following up on your answer from episode 200, how to activate TPM in the BIOS of your system, I wonder whether there are are any downsides to doing that. I do recall that your explanation how uh, the DEP data execution protection was introduced in the x86 family, and it used to cause a lot of applications to crash as they were trying to execute code on the stack or heap, and DEP, of course, prevents that. So I wonder if TPM might have similar side effects, breaking some applications. If there are no issues, well, why don't BIOS vendors or the PC vendors turn it on by default? Also, apart from full disk encryption, what other benefits do you get by enabling it? Thanks, Amir. It's a great question. The answer is, do you remember how much trouble
1: Intel got yes. in? Yes, yes, I know where you're going. Uh-huh. Um, when they they and that, announced processor IDs on, yes. on the Pentium. Yes, the idea that every single chip would have a unique serial number. And it didn't take the privacy people, you know, half a millisecond to say, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, What? And in fact, I remember going into BIOSes that had it turned on by default and turning it off. It's like, thank you, but I would prefer not to have, you know, for whatever reason, it just seems like a bad idea for my Pentium to have a unique serial number, which is available to the outside. And so the good news was you were able to disable that feature and now it's gone completely because it was just bad idea well the trusted platform module is very much the same it is there's definitely a a privacy related concern because it's it has the ability i mean a part of its function is to be an anchor for identity of the machine i would argue that its benefits outweigh the liabilities but the, 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 the motherboard BIOS manufacturers weren't going to have this happen to them again. So they said, okay, just so that no one accuses us of having a, you know, a serializing, a crypto unique machine of any kind on every single motherboard, we're going to just have it off by default. If the user needs those services, they can turn it on. And to answer a mere second question, apart from full disk encryption, what, what other benefits do you get? Well, it is it is the identity enclosure for your system. There's actually a lot more that that the TPM is doing than than just providing sort of a vault for for security information during the boot process. It's actually looking at the at the image of the code running during booting and performing hashes of it to make sure that step by step during the boot process nothing bad has happened no there, there there there's no malicious code that has has managed to stick itself into the boot process so it's very useful the idea is that if you if you start from a known secure condition that is with the machine off it's hard to get much more secure than that and if you validate every stage of the booting process using secure validation technology then once the OS gets booted it can be sure that nothing malicious has happened before it got into before it got in control and the trusted platform module makes that I mean that whole process possible so it's it's very useful and of course it's also useful for providing secure authentication. If you're going to use a, a fingerprint reader, you're you're like at boot time, then you it's always tied to a TPM chip. So you enable that, then you na- enable your fingerprint reader, and it's very possible then to swipe your fingerprint and to have that verified by the BIOS to ha- and have that provide a password to the hard drive that unlocks the physical hard drive that makes it it possible to boot and absent the both the fingerprint swipe and the TPM nothing can access the data on your hard drive so there's there's you know a lot of good stuff there not only hard drive encryption but also authentication and as we learned in Windows 7 they will be and I'm really excited about this in Windows 7 they will be making a public API that would for example allow applications running on Windows 7 To say, hey, um, before we do this, please re-authenticate yourself. For example, it's a feature that I will I will definitely take advantage of in CryptoLink, where you could require that the the server ask a client to re-verify that they're really themselves in a from a human factors standpoint by wiping their finger across a fingerprint reader. Right now, there's no way to do that because there's no common API for the fingerprint reader, but That's something that Microsoft is going to be providing in Windows 7, which will be very cool. And again, it's all based on the TPM.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a I remember a lot of controversy when TPM was first proposed. People like Cory Doctorow were freaking out because one of the possible uses would be to expire documents that you could send a Word document that would be expired, you know, after a certain period of time. I mean, there were all sorts of issues Right, well, because it's, it's non-spoofable, it is right. deliberately a non-spoofable
1: technology. So sure, somebody could abuse the power that it gives them. But,
0: you know, it's like, well, OK, they could also I mean, there's all, all other kinds of ways they could do that, too. And as a result, I think manufacturers opted to well, let's just avoid the whole thing and default to off. That way we don't have to defend it. And if somebody needs it or wants it and 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 in and, and, and full knowledge of the risks and benefits, turns it on all the better. Right. Yeah. Steve, once again, a wonderful time. You get your questions into Steve by going to GRC.com. That's his website. And if you go to GRC.com slash feedback, that feedback form is right there. You can ask questions there. Uh, you can also uh, get the 16 kilobit versions for those of you who are bandwidth challenged. We've got the show notes, a full transcription by Elaine, a lot of detail. And, of course, spin rights there, the world's best finest one and only hard drive maintenance and recovery utility and all and those great even free programs have a valid security certificate Leo. <laughs> <laughs> and a shiny new certif- security certificate that's grc gibson research corporation grc.com and that could that tells you how long steve's been doing this he's got a three-letter domain name which are as rare as hen's teeth so steve great to talk to you as always uh i am in china as uh, this airs but uh, we'll and so let's see, I think our next live record date two weeks be, from now, two weeks from now, it'll be uh, yep. we're going to do the mega
1: security update podcast. It would normally be a and a but we will have been not recording live at that point for three weeks. <laughs> lots to talk Lord, about. <laughs> Lord knows what will have happened. I hope the Internet is still here. Computers are still booting. Um and then uh, we'll, we'll let our listeners know what has happened in the three weeks that you've
0: been floating around Asia. You bet. You can watch us do this live Wednesdays, again, starting up again July 22nd, Wednesdays at, uh, let's see, we start at 2 p.m., eastern that's 11 a.m pacific or 1800 utc at live.twit.tv or just listen to the podcast when it's available every thursday on uh, on itunes and the zoom marketplace and everywhere else every it's steve- thursday like clockwork like clockwork thanks to tony and now eric who's also working on the show thank you steve we'll see you next time on security now thanks leo security now yeah.